so uh, we are in a, our Defending the Faith series. Tonight is part five, and the question is, is the Bible reliable? The first, se- the first thing, w- we did the introduction. The second uh, session, the second part was, is there absolute truth? And if you don't come to the point where you believe in absolute truth, then none of the other stuff even matters. Once you establish that there is absolute truth, then you can establish part three, um, is there a God? You know, is, there, is God real? And once you do that, then we look at um, uh, whatever we talked about last week. <laughs> it just totally went blank on me. Um, but so it, almost each one is building upon another and helping you understand that they, they really become a foundation for uh, other truths that we're going to get to in this series. And so tonight we're looking at, is the Bible reliable? <clears throat> the Bible has how many books? 66 books. Anybody have a guess as far as how many authors make up those 66 books? How many, how many men wrote? Ballpark. 40 is correct. Is that on the sheet? I think it is on the sheet. <laughs> it might actually be there. Kudos to you if you found that. Um, actually, no, it isn't, but that was a really good guess. Um, 40 is correct. About 40 different authors. Um, we, we, uh, does anybody know, just, just in case anybody ever invites you to Biblical Jeopardy, uh, if that ever becomes a thing, does, do you know the one book of the Bible that we do not explicitly know? I mean, some, most of the books of the Bible, we know the author, but there's one book of the Bible we have no idea who the author is. Does anybody know what book of the Bible that, that is? Hebrews is correct. Hebrews is the only book that does not explicitly state who the author is or there's not enough contextual evidence to know. Whoever the author of Hebrews was had an incredible knowledge of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system because they are connecting dots um, that are incredibly uh, brilliantly put together with how the Old Testament sacrificial system is connected with Christ's once and for all sacrifice. Yes? Um, well, nobody really, I I think the assumption is that Job wrote Job. Um, but I don't know. Uh, Job is actually the oldest book of the Bible as far as the writing of it. Um, it predates Genesis, obviously not in events, but in the writing of the book of Genesis. Um, so that, that may be the case. I'm not really sure who, who claims authorship. You know, for instance, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, they're attributed to people, but we really don't know. Hebrews is one of the ones we absolutely don't know who wrote it. People say Paul, but it doesn't follow Paul's style. Uh, it could be Peter, but Peter didn't have the knowledge, uh, that Paul would have had. Um, you know, somebody may say Barnabas or some, whoever wrote it, who, whoever he or she was had an incredible knowledge of the old Testament. Um, so 40, 66 books, 40 authors spanning 1,500 years. The Bible is a unique book in that uh, it is an epic love story of God revealing himself to mankind. So as I've said before, it's not a science textbook. It's not a history textbook. It's not trying to give you the entire story of the world, story of creation, story of biology. It's not even attempting that. It's an, a love story from cover to cover. And it shows you the great links that God will go to in order to redeem mankind. So, you know, the very first group of people sin, and the, there's prophecy in uh, Genesis chapter 3 about the redemption of mankind, that uh, he will bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise uh, the, the heel of the seed. And so this is a, actually a messianic prophecy saying that Satan will wound the seed, which is uh, believed to be Christ, but Christ will stomp on the ser- a serpent's head. And uh, <clears throat> so anyway, the whole from cover to cover, it's all about redemption. It's all about salvation. It's all about Christ. Here's what we need to understand, and this is what we believe, that the, the main point for you uh, in, in this issue is the Bible reliable. The Bible is the authoritative word of God in faith and practice. Authoritative meaning that we don't need another book to supplement what we're missing. We don't need the Book of Mormon. We don't need the New World Translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses use. We don't need the Quran in order to understand God's revelation. The Bible is the authoritative word of God in faith and practice because people were inspired of God when they wrote the original manuscripts accurately and without error. 
and its message is without error, authoritative, and trustworthy. That's a lot, but basically the Bible is the Word of God. That's what that essentially says. We believe that it is trustworthy, um, the original manuscripts are without error. If, you, if we find errors, sometimes it could just be a translation issue. Um, we are dealing with ancient Hebrew, and Hebrew uh, was kind of a dead language for a period of time until it was brought back. Um, so, uh, But we do believe that the Bible was written. Um, it, it, we believe it is the Word of God. Now, the counterpoint, what do people who do not believe the Bible is reliable, what do they believe? Well, they believe the Bible contains stories and messages made up by ancient man, and it has errors and mistakes. It is not relevant for today and does not contain a trustworthy plan of salvation or a workable plan for today's living, but is an irrelevant guide for modern people. One of the things that they'll do is they'll point to uh, a statement, for instance, in the book of Proverbs. There's two verses. They're side by side, one after another, and one of them says, Do not answer a fool his folly. The very next verse says, Answer a fool his folly. And so they're like, ooh, the Bible's contradicting itself. And the reality is is sometimes you tell your teenager you're being stupid. And other times you tell your teenager, you don't tell your teenager you're being stupid um, or they're being stupid. Sometimes you answer a fool, you're being foolish. Stop being foolish. And other times you don't because uh, you, and so one of the things that I like is this phrase by Josh McDowell. He says, rebuke without relationship leads to rebellion. Rebuke without relationship leads to rebellion. If I rebuke you and I don't have a relationship with you, the default is to rebel. Um, and teachers see this all the time when you have to correct a student and you don't have a relationship with the student. If you, have a, if you have a good working relationship with a student and you rebuke them, a lot of times they'll take it. And they'll, they'll, they'll sometimes even appreciate it. Thanks. You, you, know, you saw something I didn't see. I appreciate that. When you try to rebuke somebody you don't have a relationship with, They'll rebel. So sometimes you answer a fool his folly because you have a relationship with that fool and they're being foolish and say, stop being foolish. But other times you don't have a relationship with the fool, so you don't even answer him. You just ignore him and just say, no, I'm not even going to deal with you. So in, in that situation, we don't believe it's contradicting. We believe the context determines uh, whether you do or do not answer a fool his folly. People, when, when people try to attack something, they look at the exception and they try to make it the rule. Uh, for instance, when people argue that the church shouldn't tell people who they can and cannot marry because they're pointing out passages where biblical characters engaged in adultery or polygamy, um, those are the exceptions and those are not the rule. God never commanded and he never endorsed such behavior. He never commanded adultery. He never commanded or endorsed polygamy. Uh, he commanded monogamy. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Karen and Tabitha and all these other. It was just one man, one woman. That was the plan. He endorsed and sanctioned monogamy and fidelity. Uh, not any other variation of marriage. You can see this clearly. Even generations later with Abraham, God promises a son to Abraham. Abraham and Sarah get a little impatient. Sarah says, well, maybe God meant you, but not me. And God's probably thinking, oh, please. Um, so... She says, why don't you sleep with my servant Hagar? Abraham's like, well, nothing else has worked. So he does. So she has a baby, and then when God comes back, he says, uh, Abraham, I'm going to bless you with a son. And Abraham's like, yeah, I've got one. Thanks. And it's like, no, 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 with your wife, Sarah. And it's like, oh, we're still on that? Are we st okay. And uh, so then when he has, when they have Isaac, um, God comes back. Now, Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and God says, I want you to take your son, your only son that you love, which it, there's a lot to unpack there, which we can't get into, but God knows Ishmael's alive. Ishmael's probably sitting over there going, hey, you know, wait a minute. I'm, I'm, I'm standing right here, whatever. But God does never, he never sanctions or endorses, endorses adultery, bigamy, or anything like that. Um, he endorses fidelity and monogamy. Um, but people point to exceptions and try to make them the rule and say, hey, you, the church can't, the church has nowhere to, no position uh, to talk about marriage because of all of your, you know, biblical characters. Um, people look at the situation of Israel leaving Egypt and going to Canaan as another example 
of an exception trying to be the rule. And here's why. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, God commanded Israel completely destroy six specific tribes of people. And, but not every tribe was supposed to be destroyed. Some, they could, once they defeated them, they could take them as slaves and all of their possessions. But six tribes were selected for complete annihilation. People questioned the character of God with such a request. They failed to read the very next verse, Deuteronomy 20, 18, which explains why God commanded it. And it says, so that they won't teach you all of the detestable things they do for their gods and you sin against the Lord your God. These nations were morally and sexually corrupt and would have led Israel astray. So God says you, you cannot let them live. They were engaged in uh, child sacrifice and uh, all sorts of depraved conduct. Um, so God said this whole planet belongs to me and they don't deserve to continue profaning the nation that I have given to you. And what's interesting is Israel actually disobeyed God on this point. They didn't completely wipe out all those six tribes. They let them stay in the land. And what happened? Exactly what God told them was going to happen. They, these nations led Israel astray through disobedience. So we look at the question, is the Bible reliable? We have nine points to get to, so we are going to fly. Um, so if you have questions, um, you may, wanna, you may need to hold them to the end, <laughs> jot them down or something. First of all, the Bible is the word of God because of the unique revelation of Jesus Christ. The unique revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that Jesus existed before creation, that he was the creator, that he manifested himself through the Old Testaments in what are called Christophanies. Um, and that those are appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. The fourth man in the fiery furnace is Jesus. The man that, G, uh, that Moses is talking face-to-face with on Mount Sinai is Jesus. Uh, the, the man that Jacob wrestled uh, most likely was Jesus. These are called Christophanies, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, and so Jesus is revealing himself throughout the Old Testament. Um, scripture talks about that he was born of a virgin, so he wasn't tainted by the sins of mankind. Uh, he lived a sinless life. The Bible declares that Jesus lived a sinless life. He died as a substitute for uh, the salvation of sinners. It declares that he was buried and he rose from the grave on the third day. He ascended into heaven where he lives to make intercession at the right hand of the Father. So the Bible is specifically revealing Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this unique revelation of Christ demands an examination by any rational person who seeks the truth. Either he is or he is not. He is not in between. He's got to be one or the other. The claims of Jesus are so radical that they cannot be ignored. You either have to, when you know them, you either have to accept them or reject them. Uh, So if Jesus is the Son of God as he claimed to be, if he is the Son of God as he claimed to be, and if he died for all mankind, then everyone is obligated to believe in him. If Jesus isn't what he claimed to be, then everyone should reject his claims. If one claim is false, everything, everything else is false. If Jesus doesn't fulfill every single prophecy that's required, if one prophecy falls or fails, one prophecy goes unfulfilled, that's it. He's not the Messiah. That's what this is all built upon. And that is why there's an overwhelming case for Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of the living God, because he fulfills every single one of the prophecies. Six outlandish claims that Jesus makes on your sheet. Number one, he equated himself with Yahweh. God's covenant name, which infuriated the Pharisees because he repeatedly used Yahweh, uh, I am, that I am, when he responded to the Pharisees when they asked him, who are you? He told them who he was. He equated himself with God's covenant name, Yahweh. Number two, he claimed to be identical with the Father, that he and the Father are one. Number three, he asserted his omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence. Number four, and I've given you the scripture references listed there as well. Number four, he received and approved of human worship. This is what the Jehovah's Witnesses don't understand. They say that Jesus was not the Son of God, that he never claimed to be the Son of God. But the problem is that in the Bible, no one is allowed to receive worship except for God alone. And so 
Now, you could worship Satan all day long, but if you're from God, an angel or a messenger from God, they do not receive worship. When people fell down at their feet, the angels will say, do not worship me, worship God alone. Angels, messengers never received worship, but Jesus did repeatedly. And the only people that were allowed to receive worship were God himself. And so Jesus received worship, yet another claim that he was God. Number five, he forgave sins, something only God can do. You can come to me. You can confess your sins. I can make the sign of the cross. I can put some anointing oil on you, but I cannot forgive your sins. Even if you sinned against me, you also sinned against God. So I cannot forgive you of your sins. Um, But Jesus did. Number six, he identified himself with God through several I am statements. I am I'm the bread of life. I am, I am the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Repeatedly and thoroughly, Jesus claimed to be God, so there was no question to his listeners. Now, I apologize if this chart is small on your sheet. Um, I did put it here, but it might not make any difference if you're sitting too far away. So there are, as we understand the Bible being the unique revelation of Jesus Christ. This is basically what you have on your, on your sheet. Jesus Christ claims to be God. Six, uh, the six ways I gave you, which there were plenty more, but six uh, outlandish claims where Jesus claims to be God. There are two alternatives. He, it's either false or it's true. So let's go down the, this alternative. If it's false then there are two alternatives to that. He either knew his claims were false or he didn't know his claims were false. If he knew his claims were false, it was deliberate because he is claiming himself equal with God. So if he knows that his claims are false, then it's a deliberate uh, misrepresentation. If it is, he's a liar. If he's a liar, he's also a hypocrite because he calls the Pharisees, the religious leaders, hypocrites. And so that would make him a a bigger hypocrite than them. Um, It would make him have a spirit of demons because he is asserting himself to be God and yet not God. And that's something that's very demonic to do. And lastly, it would make him a fool uh, because he knows himself not to be God. And yet he parades around and does all sorts of things as if he is God. Now, if his claims are false, that he's not God, but he didn't know it, he thought he genuinely was God, then he was either, he was deluded, he was living in this, you know, crazy psychological delusion, and basically he was a lunatic. He was a crazy person. Yet, as we read the statements of Christ, they don't sound like the ramblings of a lunatic. Have you ever, have you ever spent some time with somebody who's like legitimately crazy? It doesn't take long to figure that out. They don't make any sense. They don't make any sense. I was actually in downtown Dallas working on a project for my uh, bachelor's degree, my final project, and I had to interview a homeless guy and uh, you know hear his story and all this stuff. And apparently this guy, he wasn't homeless. He wanted to make that. I'm not homeless, but I used to be homeless. I'm like, okay. And so he said, I wrote a book, and I want you to have a copy of it. And so... Um, he gave me a book, and it was a binder about this thick, and it was just the ramblings of a lunatic. Um, and, and he talked about how, uh, like one of the things he said was that he always felt like he had a very unusual attraction to his half-sister. And he said, and, and I quote uh, fairly closely in his, from his book, I'm not sure where it started or when it started, but it probably goes back to the time I received electroshock therapy on many occasions. And I'm like, okay. So, and guys, that's just one paragraph of a binder this thick of his book. It's, it's the ramblings of a lunatic. It doesn't take much to, you spend some time with a crazy person. Who's going to die for a crazy person? If someone is so deluded and so crazy that they don't even realize they're, they're not God, and yet they're claiming to be, who would go to their death for a person like that? And yet the disciples did. And hundreds and hundreds of people who were eyewitnesses of Christ were martyrs because they believed this message. They did not believe him to be a lunatic or uh, deluded. If his claims about being God are true, then he is who he says he is. He is the Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And our response is, well, one of two things. You can't be indifferent. You either accept it or reject it. And so this is what the... uh, 
to help us understand. If Jesus, if Jesus is just a fictional character in a fake book, why in the world was he invented? The details about his life, his character, his mission, they all condemn humanity. And they reveal the sinful state of the individual. If you're going to write a book uh, about yourself or, or claim to be God, I mean, you're going to want followers. You're going to want to make it easy for people to follow you. Um, you're not going to inv- you're going to invent a character that's that justifies and reinforces the way that they want to live. Not calling people to live uh, to 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 have to live up to a perfect standard like Jesus lived. Um, you know, you're not going to call people to selfless sacrifice and all this stuff. Um, so the Bible is a unique revelation of Jesus Christ. Number two, and they're going to go faster than that one was. So that was just a lot. Number two, the Bible is the word of God because it claims that it's from God. It claim because of, I'm sorry, number two, okay. The Bible is the word of God because of the extraordinary claims that it is from God. More than 1,900 times in Scripture, more than 1,900 times, the authors claimed their message was from God. They would say, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me. Um, thus saith the Lord shows up 1,700 times just in the Old Testament. If God wrote a book, his truthfulness would demand that he claim to be the author. Therefore, phrase, in phrases like the word of the Lord came to me, God is claiming authorship of the Bible. He is saying that I'm responsible for what comes next. And so God gave his message and human messengers, uh, uh, God gave his message, I'm sorry, and human messengers communicated that message from God. It's either the word of God or it must be rejected as a hoax and a fraud because it claims to be from God. So it can't, you cannot be indifferent as to, well, it's, a, it's, it's got a lot of moral stories. It either is or is not from God. It's either legitimate or it's a hoax and a fraud. Um, if it is a fraud, we should completely reject it. If it's genuine, we should accept it as God's revealed word and respond accordingly. Number three, the Bible is the word of God because of the empirical evidence of the fulfillment of prophecy. Of the empirical evidence of the fulfillment of prophecy. I don't have the ability to predict the future. If I did, I would have won the lottery a long time ago and you would have never even met me. I don't have the ability to predict the future. Man does not have the ability. The only, we can guess, but we cannot know for sure until the events actually happen. You know, have you ever met somebody who goes, oh, yeah, I knew that was going to happen? No, you didn't. Well, I, I thought it might happen. I mean, only God can predict the future accurately. So if somebody can accurately predict the fall of world powers, um, how a king will attack the city, Jer- in, uh, Jeremiah talks, Jeremiah explicitly predicts how Nebuchadnezzar is going to defeat him. And, and Jeremiah says, look, king, do, the best thing you can do is surrender. If you don't surrender, the people in your city are going to die, you're going to be captured, and all of your princes and leaders are going to be killed in front of your eyes, and the last thing Nebuchadnezzar is going to do is gouge out your eyes. What does the king do? Get out of here, you crazy man. You're not Talking from the Lord. None of my other prophets are telling me this. And Jeremiah says, yeah, because they're not telling you the word of the Lord. They're telling you what you want to hear. This is the word of the Lord. It's something you don't want to hear. What happens? If you read at the end of Jeremiah, the city is besieged. Uh, people are dying and, and killing their, you know, they're running out of food. And the king decides he's going to sneak out of the city. He takes his rulers and his sons, the princes, out with him. They get captured. All of them get killed. And the king gets his eyes, eyes gouged out, exactly the way Jeremiah said. So uh, the prophecy is fulfilled. And there's all of this empirical evidence within the Bible that it is the word of the Lord because God is prophesying through the prophets what's going to happen. And then it comes true. One person said that the man, uh, one guy who was like, well, the man named Jesus Christ, this man that you all believe in, he, he read all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, and the, then he went out and attempted to fulfill them. Well, that's ridiculous, because a lot of the prophecies about the Messiah were about when, where, and how he would be born, something that clearly you know is completely out of our control. Um, if this theory were correct, Jesus was a lunatic 
for trying for dying to prove predictions that he knew that were not true about himself. Only a crazy person does that. And again, it doesn't seem like Jesus is a crazy person uh, based on the people who listened to him and spoke to him. And, and, and in fact, the prevailing opinion of the people, um, which irritated the Pharisees, but the common people of the day said, we've never heard anybody speak about, uh, quote, Scripture and, and speak the things of God with this much authority. And the Pharisees are like, hey, we're right here. But they're like, well, you don't speak with authority. This guy speaks with authority. He knows what he's talking about. He's expounding the scriptures. He's making us help us understand what God is saying in a way that you guys never could. And so it doesn't seem like Jesus is crazy. Um, God went to extraordinary lengths in order to prove that Jesus was his, uh, the Messiah and he was going to fulfill prophecies. All somebody has to do is disprove one prophecy and Jesus is a fraud. That's all it takes. Jesus fulfilled 60 major Old Testament prophecies with an additional 270 uh, consequences that are documented in the New Testament. So a total of 330 prophecies Jesus fulfilled, all of which were written more than 400 years before Jesus was even born. This makes an overwhelming case that Jesus Christ was absolutely the Son of God. Now, we have to admit, Jesus wasn't the only Jewish boy born in Bethlehem. Uh, He wasn't the only Jewish boy born in the tribe of Judah. Uh, He wasn't the only uh, person buried in a rich man's tomb. That's entirely possible. Some of the details of Jesus' life that were prophesied just might happen to coincide with uh, those Old Testament prophecies. Now, for, for those of you, I've shared this once or twice before, but for those of you that haven't heard it, and for the sake of this uh, uh, recording, I want to share this with you. When we look at the probability that one person could fulfill biblical prophecy, um, there's actually a statistical, an, statistical analysis that was done um, by a guy named Professor Peter W. Stoner. It was an analysis that was reviewed, reviewed very carefully um, and uh, pronounced to be sound by the American Scientific Affiliation. The probability that just eight prophecies would be fulfilled in, in one person in their entire lifetime is 1 times 10 to the 17th power. That is one chance in one quintillion. One person fulfilling just eight prophecies the likelihood that they could do that in their lifetime, in their entire lifetime, is 1 times 10 to the 17th power. Now, it's hard to put that number in perspective. So this is the great analogy. Josh McDowell uh, came up with this one and uh, provides a, a really good example of it. Let's say you were to take 1 quintillion silver dollars. 1 quintillion silver dollars would cover the state of Texas 2 feet deep, all the way from El Paso to Orange, Amarillo to Brownsville, all over the entire state of Texas. It would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. Now, let's say you took one more silver dollar and you took and you marked it with a big red X and you uh, tossed that silver dollar in the mix in Texas and you stirred it up mad somehow. <laughs> somehow, everybody in Texas just went like this and stirred up the silver dollars. If you walked from El Paso and and you blindfolded yourself and then you walked the length and the breadth and the width of Texas, stopping one time to pick up one silver dollar, the likelihood that you would pick up the one silver dollar with the red X in two feet deep across the state of Texas is the same likelihood that one person could fulfill just eight prophecies in their entire lifetime. One in one quintillion. In other words, it's unthinkable. You all realize how incredibly impossible it would be to find the one silver dollar with the red X two feet deep in the state of Texas. It's unthinkable that one person could fulfill eight Old Testament prophecies in their lifetime, 80 years, let alone the 330 prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, unless he is, of course, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So we understand 
that there is incredible evidence in the fulfillment of prophecy. Number four, the Bible is the word of God because of the convicting, convincing, converting power of the message. The power of its message. Yes, the Bible contains a lot of narratives. It contains stories about people getting drunk, people committing violence, people committing adultery and sin. But the Bible never once justifies their sinful actions. The Bible calls people to repentance. It has convicting power to unsettle those who uh, are living in sin. It has the power to convert and transform people when they receive its message. No other book on your bookshelf can do that. You can't read War and Peace and have the Holy Spirit speak to you the way the Spirit speaks to you through the Word of God. You cannot read any other book and it speak to you, speak to your spirit the way the Holy Bible does. Thousands of people who rejected God and rejected the Bible picked it up for whatever reason and were converted and transformed by the Word of God. The author of the book Ben-Hur, sought to disprove Christianity. Lee Strobel is a more modern example um, of, a, of a man. Uh, both of these men were atheists. They uh, endeavored to research for the sole purpose of disproving uh, the Bible and disproving Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The problem was that when you start to disprove the Word of God, you're working on disproving God himself, and the problem is you can't. Because there is a God. And the deeper they got in their research and the more they went and Lee Strobel went to the Vatican and he was digging in all these ancient texts and looking for inconsistencies and and contradictions. And the deeper he got in his biblical research, the more he realized Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And they were transformed and powerfully converted to Christianity because the message has that power and that ability. Number five, the Bible is the word of God because of the inexhaustible nature of its revelation. Inexhaustible nature of its revelation. It's a simple book and a profound book all at the same time. As sincerely as we try to understand theology, we encounter an infinitely complex God. Yet we also encounter a God who's simple. He's the good shepherd. He's the loving father. And so uh, we understand that as God reveals himself to mankind, the Bible should be expected to be complex and profound as well. Yet God desired to communicate with finite humanity, so the Bible is also simple. For instance, Genesis details the simple information about how God created the heavens and the earth. So much so that a child could read it and understand it. On day one, God did this. Day two, he did this. Day three, etc. The Bible does not go into detail on how carbon is formed. It doesn't go into detail about the fine-tuning of the universe, what elements the stars need for the combustion. Um, It doesn't talk about all of those details because it doesn't need to. It just says in a simple way, God created the heavens and the earth. Once we discover through science how incredibly complex that was, we have a much greater appreciation for creation itself and its creator. You know, we look at the heavens, and people have looked up at the heavens for thousands of years and go, wow, you know, what an amazing God we have that's created all of this. And now we can see even further into space and see even more detail about how the world was created. And if anything, it doesn't lead us to atheism. If anything, it leads us to awe and wonder of an incredibly complex God that knew all of this detail and that we're just now figuring out. Number six. The Bible is the word of God because of the unity of the message. The unity of the message from a vast number of diverse human sources. If you have four pedestrians on four in in an intersection and they're each standing on four different street corners, they're all going to have a different perspective of the car wreck that they witness. Well, this guy hit this first. No, this person cut him off. No, they're all going to have a different perspective. Four people will have a different recounting of the events based on their vantage point. The Bible has 40 authors over 1,500 years all telling the same story of God reaching out to mankind to show them his love and their sinful state. There's unity in the Bible because there's dual authorship, God and man. 
the Bible was written over 55 generations. It's not like one person decided to write, I'm going to write this epic tale. You know, it was 55 generations the Bible is written over, and yet there's a singular unity of it. Only God, who transcends time, could do such a thing and be its source. Number seven, the Bible is the word of God because of the transcultural appeal of the message. The transcultural appeal. Whether you're a first century reader or a 21st century reader, the Bible has a universal appeal to it. It uses agricultural and rural examples. But these are understandable with minimal research. Yes, you know, most of us uh, have to do a little digging as far as understanding some of the agricultural, um, you know, the parable of the sower. And think we don't normally, we're not the, you're not farming, you know, unless you're a farmer, then you don't, you kind of get lost on that. Um, But many linguists have remarked about how easy the Bible is to translate into other languages. It's a message for all people, regardless of the culture, regardless of their age, regardless of their education or their socioeconomic level. It's a message for all people. And one of the reasons that the New Testament is specifically um, is so effective is because it's written in something called Koine Greek. Koine Greek is marketplace Greek. Koine Greek is not classical Greek. Classical Greek is what Plato, Socrates, and the senators and the philosophers... That's the kind of Greek that they wrote in, the highly educated Greek. But the Bible wasn't written in classical Greek. It was written in marketplace Greek, koine, K-O-I-N-E, koine Greek. Why? So that every person who heard the message, every person that read a scroll of the gospel of Mark or Luke or John or one of the other letters, so that anybody who read it could understand the message. That's the purpose of the scripture, so that every person can understand what God is saying. Number eight, the Bible is the word of God because of the unmistakable honesty of the scriptures. The unmistakable honesty of the scriptures. Most, if you've ever read, uh, gosh, I was trying to think of uh, some of the some of the old ancient books of epic heroes, they describe to you the exploits of their characters. They, they, they share with you, you know, the, the valiant uh, accomplishments that they uh, were able to do. The Bible is unique because it shows almost every single one of its characters in its highs and lows. Jonah, there are a lot of lows for Jonah. There's really only one high, and that was just him finally obeying the Lord and preaching. And then he finished his sermon and walked up to a cliff and said, okay, God, let me see you destroy him now. You know, the worst missionary ever. Um, you know, it shows the, the uh, even I would say the highs and lows of Jesus' life because it shows his ministry, but it also shows his rejection. It shows him performing miracles, but it also shows him sweating blood in Gethsemane and the travail and the sorrow he felt. It shows the humanity and the honesty of all of its biblical characters. David, when he's defeating Goliath and the lions and the bears, oh my, and he's, you know, uh, doing all of these military exploits and he's building the temple, or trying to, he wants to build the temple, but God won't let him. He builds his palace and he's uh, bringing the Ark of the Covenant in and it's all the, the highs of David and he's a man after God's own heart, which is what God actually said about him, not what David said about him. But God said about David, he's a man after my own heart. But then it shows the lows. It shows, obviously, him with Bathsheba. It also shows him uh, some poor leadership decisions he made. Um, and uh, so it's, it's the honesty of Scripture where it is demonstrating um, the, the highs and the lows of the characters. It's not just giving you the rosy pictures. It shows Moses, you know, carrying the Ten Commandments down the mountain you know, I mean, you know, in the Charlton Heston, I think Charlton Heston is, is just iconic. You know, I have the Ten Commandments. That's a terrible Charlton Heston impression. But, but, and then he sees, what does he see when he comes down with the Ten Commandments? Them worshiping the golden calf. God has just brought them out 
of Egypt. God has spoken to them from the mountain. And they see this cloud. They see fire and lightning. And they're like, we don't even want to come close to the mountain. Moses goes up for 40 days. They think, ah, he's not coming back. And uh, it's a great story. Great not in that it was good for them, but great that it's a, it's a pretty fantastic story, just entertaining-wise. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, Moses comes down, and he's so angry because they've already broken the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, and they're dancing around a golden calf. And so what does Moses do? He throws the Ten Commandments down. They shatter. He goes down to Aaron, what in the world are you thinking? And Aaron's like, the, you know, this is where I think Aaron was maybe a teenager or something because Aaron says, I don't know, they gave me their gold. I just threw it in the fire and out popped a golden calf. I'm like, I have, I have teenagers, that's exactly what it sounds like. You know, I don't even know. I don't know how that got in my backpack. Um, like, yeah, you do. Um, so... So when Moses goes back up the mountain, he's like, well, God, they totally blew it. I mean, I had the Ten Commandments for 15 seconds, and they're already breaking the first one. And Moses is writing this story, okay? And Moses says that God basically got angry with him. You broke my Ten Commandments. So the first Ten Commandments, God actually cut them out of the rock that come out of the mountain, And he wrote them with his own finger. But the second round, the second group of Ten Commandments, God says, get your own rock, and you can chisel them yourself. And so Moses does. Moses now has to cut the rock out of the mountain, and he chisels them. I don't know if he had tools or God, you know, poof, you know, here's a chisel and a hammer. But you're doing it yourself this time. Because you didn't realize how incredibly special what you had, and you threw it down and you broke it. And so... Moses is being honest about himself. He, he talks about how, you know, he, uh, God says, uh, you know, the, well, the people are grumbling. They're like, we're thirsty. We had it better in Egypt. We're hungry. And uh, we need water. And so God says, strike the rock. And so Moses takes his rod and strikes the rock. It bursts forth, wa- bursts forth. Water comes out. We're like, yes, that's awesome. Second time around, people are grumbling and complaining. We, we're thirsty. We're hungry. This quail is nasty this manna is weird because that's what literally the word manna means what is this and uh so like what is that it's floating down and we're i don't know but that's what we're going to call it we're like you know every time we eat manna what is it i don't know who knows and so um so they're complaining again and god says second time speak to the rock and moses is like you disobedient israelites and he smacks the rock with his rod It opens up, water bursts forth. But that act of disobedience, God said to Moses, you can see the promised land, but you won't lead him in it. You've got to hear my voice so clearly and do exactly what I say. And if you can't do that, you cannot lead them the next step. I need someone who has absolute, uh, who understands complete obedience and will do exactly what I say, regardless of how crazy it sounds. Because where do they go next? Jericho. And what does God ask him to do? Not pull out the swords. March around the city. Once a day for seven days and seven times on the seventh day. And after, at the end of the seventh time, you're not throwing javelins. You're not catapulting soldiers in there. Ah, you know, you're not jumping city walls. You're not climbing it with grappling hooks. You're blowing trumpets and shouting. Well, I got news for you. That doesn't make city walls come crumbling down. But it did in scripture. And that was the kind of obedience when God said, I need you to do it my way. Not the way you think is right. The way I know is right. Because the battle, the victory doesn't belong to you. You can shout as loud as you want. We get pretty loud on Sundays. These walls don't come down. Because our vocal vibrations do not, you know, break and shatter brick and drywall. But God said, I need you to obey. And when you do, the walls will come down. And Joshua had walked with Moses and seen what Moses did right and what Moses did wrong. And when God says, I need you to do it, and I need you to do it my way, Joshua had the wisdom to say, I will obey. And that's why Moses couldn't lead him. It's because he 
in that moment of frustration, and, and granted, he was like 120 or so at this point. He's an old man. He's like, these people are killing me. Uh, and they quite literally were. But, you know, he's, he's an old man. He's a grumpy old man at this point. He's sick and tired of their complaining. And uh, so he acts in disobedience. So, but Moses is writing this about himself, the incredible honesty of the biblical characters. All right, last one. Number nine. The Bible is the word of God because of the pragmatic test of experience. The pragmatic test of experience. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean. Every one of you in this room tonight are here because the word of God has spoken to you, because you have encountered the living God, because you have experienced what it means. Whether you're filled with the spirit or not, you're saved. You're here because you have accepted Christ. And so your life has been transformed and when you hear the word of God, when you, f- you feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, it moves you. It does something to you. The, God has changed you and transformed you. You are not what you were. You are a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. It doesn't mean you don't still struggle because the flesh nature doesn't want to stay dead. It doesn't, you know, as I said a couple of weeks ago, live, the problem with the living sacrifice is it doesn't want to stay in the altar. Living sacrifices like to climb off the altar. They don't want to stay there. They don't want to endure the pain and the punishment and the difficulty and the surrender. They want to live their way. Uh, But we have all put ourselves on the altar and yielded our lives to Christ. And so we when we test the Bible's claim, we know that it's a valid claim because our lives have been transformed by the message of the Bible. One way, one, one of the ways that I confirm God's existence is the way the Lord speaks to me. Now, some people can say, oh, you just, you're, you're uh, paranoid, schizophrenic, you hear voices. Um, other people, you know, they, they may say, well, you're, you, you have psychosis, you're delusional, you're, you're a lunatic. <clears throat> other people may say, well, this is, you know, when you hear God, that's just internal self-talk. Well, I don't know about you, but there, there are sometimes there's like opportunities that come up and something I really want to do. For instance, a car I really want to buy. That's an example. Car I really want to buy. And uh, so I'm doing the numbers. I'm like, we can afford the payment. And, and it, oh, man, it's going to be really nice. See, if, if my internal voice says yes, I am mature enough to say, wait a minute. I don't know about that. Because if my internal voice says no, don't do it. It's not the right time. That's not the right car. It's a lemon or it's going to be, you know, you're going to have problems with it. Don't do it. If it's something against what I want, man, that automatically lets me know the Lord is speaking to me because it's the opposite of my flesh. My flesh wants this and it wants it now. But when I feel the, the spirit speaking to me, the Lord is saying something contrary. He's telling me something I don't want to hear. And when I have that internal voice telling me something I don't want to hear, I know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to me because it's the opposite of the flesh. So I, I will, uh, I'll tell you this. I know that God speaks to me. First of all, he speaks to me things I didn't know. I couldn't possibly have known. The Lord has spoken to me a couple times with a word of knowledge, and the Lord told me to go tell somebody this. I did not know that. And so I go over and I tell them, you know, this is what I feel like the Lord told me. Uh, I hope it makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, pray for me that I can hear the Lord better. But um, this is what the Lord told me. And then when they respond that that's exactly what they needed to hear, the confirmation they were looking for, whatever, then I didn't know that. So I know it was the Holy Spirit speaking to me. Um, It could be something that I don't want to hear, as I said before. Um, A a change that I need to make in my life, putting myself last, um, or something I don't want to do. When I see a need... You know, I mean, you guys, y'all have seen that, that commercial, Sarah McLaughlin commercial, in the arms of an angel. And it's this puppy that's all mangy and, you know, the biggest, saddest eyes. And you're like, oh, just, you know, I, I like dogs, but I'm not going to hand over my paycheck to that. <clears throat> I mean, there are things that pull on our heartstrings. And we're like, oh, I'd like to help. But when, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you and out of nowhere says, I want you to do this, I want you to give that, I want you to go there, um, things you would not normally want to do, like, Lord, but that's my last $20, give it. And when we, 
you know, it's something. I'm like, I was going to use that. I was going to buy a movie ticket. I was going to go out to lunch. I was going to do this. You know, it's something that I don't want to do. I know the Holy Spirit is speaking to me because it's certainly not flesh. Flesh wants to spend it on self. But when, when a voice comes to you and says, do something that is the opposite of gratifying yourself, then I know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. So um, because of that, he speaks to us from his word. As I shared on Sunday when I was reading Jeremiah 29, one of those scriptures, bam, just popped right out at me. And I was like, oh, that's painful. I would not have chosen that scripture for myself. I would not have chosen that as a life verse where the Lord says, you're not speaking the word of God. You're speaking what you want to speak and not what I want you to speak. I need you to listen to my voice, and I need you to say what I want you to say. Uh, you know, we, we like verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans of hope and a future and plans to prosper. And you're like, yes! We don't like the more painful verses. And so we see that God speaks to us through his word. We believe that it is the word of God. And so now we have nine different reasons and evidences for the Bible being the word of God. Any questions? I know that was a lot to throw at you. The problem we have is that people we encounter do not understand the value of this book. They don't believe that it contains truth. And they don't, they don't value or treasure the word of God in any way, shape, or form because they don't see what we see. But now you do if you didn't before. Any questions or comments before we go? You're like, you're just going to have to process this. Would you stand with me? It's so funny. I always ask, do you have any questions or comments? And nobody says anything. And then as soon as I pray and dismiss, like half a dozen people walk up. I actually do have a question. <laughs> now nobody's going to do it. Um, but uh, now I'm just teasing you. I, 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 love, uh, I love hanging out with you guys. And I love the, uh, the questions and the um, interaction uh, that we have. Um, I love to learn. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things I've always said, and, and again, I'm trying not to be the hero of my own story here. Um, one of the things I've always said is that, you know, I want to be, I want to know God, not just know about God, but I want to know God and I want to um, be able to communicate it well and be able to uh, be the best I can. You know, I don't think that anybody goes into a line of work saying, you know what, I want to be mediocre. I want to be a middle management kind of guy. I want to be the lowest guy on the totem pole. I mean, you want the Lord to bless you, and you want to be the best you can. And you may not be the CEO one day, but you want to be the best you can be. And so that's certainly been my desire as well, is to know the Word of God and to be the best I can be. And so I enjoy, um, you know, our, our, uh, I enjoy learning and digging into it with you guys. So I, I appreciate you being here tonight. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We value, we treasure, we honor your word. We pray, Lord, that we never use it carelessly. Uh, Lord, that we never make you say something you're not saying, that we're never putting words in your mouth. But, Lord, as you speak to us um, through the Holy Spirit, through that inward witness, through you, the word of God, um, that, we, um, that we value those moments and that we lean on you for wisdom and guidance. And so, Father, we just pray that as we come in contact with people that don't have the same opinion of the Word of God that we do, that don't understand it, don't see how valuable and important this book is, that you would help us be able to communicate that in a loving way, an effective way. Father, we pray that you would go with us this week to our homes, to our neighborhoods, to our jobs, um, that you would help us be an encouragement to those we come in contact with. Lord, that you put people in our path that need prayer, that need encouragement, that need love, that need the gospel. You give us the courage, the boldness to be able to uh, share something, a message of hope with them. And uh, we ask this in your name we pray. Amen.